Welcome to another episode of the Hilaritas Podcast. I am your host, Mike Gathers. Join me as we explore the vast world of iconic writer, psychedelic psychologist, rebel philosopher, and self-proclaimed agnostic mystic, Robert Anton Wilson. Visit us at hilaritaspress.com slash podcast for show notes, links, and past episodes. In this episode, I discuss the probability engineering and Eight Circuits of Music with drummer and chaos magician Zach West. Zach West, welcome to the Hilaritas podcast. Thank you. Uh, I'm actually really honored. This is one of my favorite podcasts, uh, and I think I've probably listened to every episode at least once. And I'm a big fan of the Hilaritas press. So, yeah, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's, it's an honor. Yeah. All right. Well, I let's see. I want to think about this. I I would have met you on Facebook and saw your musical circuit stuff. And then you posted something where you're in a band with my son's musical teacher from their elementary school days at Montessori, Mr. Tony. And we got yeah. to talk in. Yeah. And we had coffee a couple of times and you would uh, talk about this probability engineering which struck me as a very, well, I guess I'll back up. So you're a professional drummer, you're teaching music, and that's how you know Mr. Tony through the band and through teaching music. And uh, we had coffee, and then you did this, uh, you talked about probability engineering, and I, I thought that would be a fun topic to talk about. So appealed to my engineering sensibilities and my interest in chaos magic. And uh, so maybe you could introduce probability engineering to us. Yeah, well, and first, I think where we first met was online in the Maybe Logic Academy. That, okay, yeah, so you reminded me at coffee that you were the uh, alias Humoroth, I believe. Did I say that right? Yeah, yep. At the Maybe Logic Academy, and you would have taken Pete Carroll's courses. That's where I would have run into you, plus the main forum, I think. That's right. Yeah, and so the, the Eight Circuit Brain course that Antero Ali taught. Okay, yeah. Excellent. So, yeah, so probability engineering, I love to reformulate things with my own vocabulary. Um, and so probability engineering is my term for playing with the probability waves of the future past. And the way I explain it, which can get pretty in-depth, but I'll try to make it as simple as I can, is that my idea is that moments are infinitesimally immediate events. And those moments are surrounded by waves of probability. And that those waves of probability are analogous, made of the same stuff, or behave like the imagination. And so through probability engineering, you can create moments of deja vu by design, and you can influence events into your life and or receive answers about the unknown aspects of life. So I have what's called decoding and encoding 
decoding being receiving answers, encoding being influencing events. And those are the two main tools that we use. Before we dip into that, tell me moments of deja vu. Say a little about that. What does that mean? So rather than happenstance deja vu, which I think most of us have had experiences of, where it's like you have this, I feel like I've been here before feeling. Deja vu by design is more like, holy shit, this is it. This is the moment that I helped influence. And ah. I always I always say probability permitting, but the examples I have in my life where it's worked, you have this real like amazing visceral feeling of this is so close to that moment that I created that I have to believe in my agency to to influence my life because this is it. And I've done it in a few different ways. And so I have stories and examples that I can share of it working. There are also many stories and examples I can share of it not working, uh, which is awesome because you can always hone your craft. Did you just say probability permitting earlier? Was that the phrase? Okay. That's what I, yeah. So it's like, you know, you you want something to happen, you know, and probability permitting this event that you want to have happen can happen. I make the joke of telekinesis. So it would be a waste of my time to think that I could levitate this computer in front of me and send it across the room. That's so improbable that why would I, why would I waste my time? But me playing Red Rocks again, more probable, mm. you know? And so you have to think about probability permitting what, what is it that you want? How probable is it? And how much extra oomph do you need to put in for that moment to collapse into a moment of deja vu by design? So sort of a sense of like, if I did nothing, maybe there's a 30% chance we'll say of this happening. How can I increase those odds? Is that the gist of it? Yeah. Yep. So how could I increase those odds? So you you create a virtual rendering through your imagination of the event happening. Gotcha. And it's one of the things I do with my with my daughters is anytime you're playing a board game, I do what's called a psychic round, where almost all board games have this element of chance. You're either spinning something or you're shuffling cards or you're rolling dice. And there's this stochastic process to these board games. And so I have my daughters do either encoding or decoding. And so dice is a perfect example because it's probability, right? You have a one in six chance of being correct. And so if you're going to encode the dice roll, before you roll it, while you're like tossing it in a cup or whatever, you visualize seeing that dice, the color of the dice, you know, the sounds mm -hmm. in the room, that dice being the side that you want it to be. Then you roll, probability permitting, you're either going to be right or wrong. And can you increase the probability of influencing that dice roll via the imagination? And that's a question, you know, I've done it, but it's always, 
working with probability, there is a one in six chance that you would have just guessed it right. But there's also what I believe is that there's a way that your imagination can influence the role because if you're taught, if you're tumbling the dice, it's not set yet. And I believe my belief is that your imagination can actually influence what happens with that dice. So it's just like visualizing the event that you want to happen. The idea is that you're helping to increase the probability. And I, I yeah. part of me, you, you mentioned imagination and a part of me imagines there's also about intention. Mm. Now that's what comes up for me at least is that you're, you're kind of creating that unkind or that, Wow, I mean, yeah, it would almost be like a sigil in a way. You're putting some intention into something, and then, I don't know, you could maybe then let it go and then just roll the dice. And I'm making my own stuff up here, but... That's absolutely right. Yeah, absolutely. And in a larger project where you, you know, with decoding, there's this term that, um, or this phrase that Peter Carroll uses a lot, where you you enchant long and you divine short because there are more Mike gathers five years from now than there are five seconds from now. The law of indeterminacy would say that there's more micro states, you know, the less immediate you get. So say you wanted to do a project where you would see a moment collapse five years from now you would create that event in your imagination, then you would create a symbolic representation of that event. And then you would focus on that with like single pointed fury and passion to the exclusion of all else. And sigils are great. I do a lot of, uh, I think you can see back here, that's one. I do a lot of sigils painting wise, but I also teach people how to use melodies and rhythms and gestures, even choreography of a, like a dance to become that symbolic representation. So we got two things going on here. and There's encoding and decoding and enchanting long and divine short. With the uh, sigils, what are we talking about? Is that more of an enchantment encoding process? So... Yeah, enchantment is my term for enchantment is encoding. I just gotcha. like to I just like that term. It's fun for me. And my term for divination would be decoding. Okay. I just I like those terms. They resonate with me. You can create a sigil to do either of those. Okay. Um it's a symbolic representation of this event whether that be receiving an answer or Ah, okay influencing give me a so let's uh dive into the decoding a little bit receiving an answer what would be the process there well one of my stories is so i was um living in an apartment in capitol hill and i had lost a ring and i knew i was moving out of this apartment soon and if i didn't find that ring and had to move out I would it would be gone forever. There'd be no way of getting it. And I tore this apartment apart, like looking everywhere for this ring. And so last minute, I was like, all right, I'm going to do a decoding. 
I'm going to see myself picking the ring up. I'm going to create a symbolic representation of that moment. Mm. And I'm going to just one pointed awareness, focus on this symbol and then let impressions come to me through the imagination. And an impression of having the ring uh, or picking the ring up from a location came to me. And I swore I had already looked in that place. But that came to me. So then after I did the ritual, I went to that place. And lo and behold, the ring was there, which just it sort of baffled me because in my memory, I had already looked there. But I saw myself picking it up from this location. So I answered the question, where is my ring? And then I got the impression through the imagination. I went to confirm whether or not it was there. And in this oh. instant, it was there. Now, this is I've done these where it has not worked, too. And I'll be totally honest about that. The ones where it has, though, it gives you that confidence, that agency that like this can work. And I always say probability permitting. Gotcha. And that, so that, yeah, that's great. I mean, that um, doesn't always work out, but through your intention, you had a, uh, and as you say, your imagination, then you had a sort of an intuitive vision about where this ring was and you went and looked and boom, there she is. What else? Talk about sigils and melodies and the musical aspect. That seems really interesting that's probably my favorite so um i have a, a grid that i work on and so for melody you take a result that you want to happen and this comes a lot from like peter carroll's idea of the sigil and you write down this intention then you condense that sentence into a few letters and then i have this grid because uh, in music notes are designated as letters you have a b c d e f g and then it starts over again and so what i do is i create this grid and so the condensed version of the sentence then gets assigned melody letters and so then i put that on a staff and i create a melody then i play that melody with single pointed awareness forgetting about the result that it that it represents there's that whole idea of lust of result so you want to forget what it is and just play that melody as if it's the only sound in the universe and it acts as the same as a sigil would and what's fun is that i i'm in a couple bands and i write songs for these bands and so i'll write songs based on these melodic sigils and they don't know <laughs> they don't know that that's what it is but then we're playing this song on stage and i'm hearing the trombone play this melody that i wrote and i'm just in it with uh, eyes closed just in it with nothing else in my uh, awareness and it's the same idea as firing off a sigil your that melody is is going to increase the probability that the event that it represents will collapse into a moment Mm. There's something interesting to me about infusing it into a song where you're playing it over and over again. As long as the song is alive within your band, do you discriminate like what you, what melodies you infuse into songs, what sigil melodies you infuse into songs, 
versus just say trying to find a ring? I do both. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, um, usually that is, is an attention that I want for that band. I do that a lot. Ah, So if it's, if it's a band and, you know, I would love for this band to play a show at the Gothic theater, wherever it may be, then this melody that I've written for this band that I don't tell them about is, is going to help increase the probability that this band will then play bigger and better shows gotcha what else where can we go here tell me more well and so a lot of this is like you know i'm huge robert anton wilson fan and so a lot of this came to me from prometheus rising you know the encoding being very close to the quarter exercise at the beginning in the Mm -hmm. what the thinker thinks the prover proves chapter and then the decoding is a lot like the magic computer that he talks about. And I forget which, which chapter that's in, but he talks about this magic computer that you ask questions of and then receive answers from. And that influenced decoding a lot for me. Would you say your approach to those two things differs? They're like two sides of a similar coin. You know, it depends on on what you want. There's also what I call the danger of decoding, where uh, decoding can inadvertently become an encoding. And that gets a little confusing, but it's I have this story of a friend being front loaded by a palm reader and the palm reader thought she was reading a possible future and the way it worked out for my friend is she she ended up feeling more like the palm reader encoded a future and you have to be super careful that's why you Mm -hmm. decode short is you got to be careful that having this vision that you think is an answer to the question may end up inadvertently creating an event say more about that so um the way you get out of it is you don't ask questions too too far into the future you you know because that is then going to influence it's going to influence that event to coalesce you ask questions about today yesterday because it's already pretty determined and so you can receive an answer without doing too much influencing right that makes sense. I need this ring right now. Let me do this thing and try to find mm-hmm. this ring. But the longer you wait to ask that question, the more chances that the ring will move or disappear or not be where you left it and uh, so on and so forth. It's making sense. Got it. Yeah. Well, so the other thing, the thing that I say, like a lot of people I work with, they, they're like, well, what in the larger sense, what, what do we use this for? Like really, you know, and I talk about what I call pataphysical narratives, pataphysics Mm. being a term that uh, came from Alfred Jerry, the symbolist playwright and artist. And pataphysics is like an imaginative solution, you getting solutions through the imagination. So you create like a heroic tale for your life. And to me, that's been the most beneficial use of probability engineering. It's been 
what has gotten me through a lot of the more traumatic events of my life. And it's become a fun way to get through some really unfun experiences. And so it's the most traumatic experiences I've had recently. This has been that sort of lantern, you know, that has helped me through those dark those those dark times and to create this heroic tale that is a larger story arc for my life i'm writing a life story um that you know i do a lot of encodings for when i'm 80 probability permitting that i get to 80 you know and yeah because it's so far in the future that um i have more influencing and so it's this pataphysical life story, life narrative, um, this heroic tale that I'd like to influence in an artistic way. And I call probability engineering like it's an artistic science experiment, but it's also a scientific art project. And it's the melding of the two of those, the art and the science, into a playful way to go about life. Nice. I'd like to dig into that a little more. The, what I'm thinking of is just, um, and, and the big picture is narrative therapy. And and it's kind of like, what's the story we tell ourselves about ourselves and our life? And how by reshaping that narrative, we can reshape well, a lot of things. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about uh, how you've implemented the heroic narrative or however, yeah, the heroic tale. Yeah. Well, I, um, uh, I think about the, I have these elements. I'm a, I love to design stuff. And so I have these, like the elements and the projects. And so the elements that I like to use, um, the first one I talk about is horizons, like the horizon being the elements that are available you know, throughout the different stages of life. And some of these elements are information. And I'm a huge fan of like Claude Shannon's information theory and and the, you know, the unpredictability of a message and how messages are received and transmitted and how that might apply to an encoding or a decoding. The other element is energy. And this is more about weight moved you know moving weight and um sort of moving through time and what energy is necessary uh as far as what i want to to encode or decode and then there's imagination being the main element that we talk about and then there's a way to integrate information energy and and imagination and so I talk a lot about that with uh, the people that I work with. And then there's entropy. And I am like obsessed with the concept of entropy and how it applies to energy, information, and the the overall arc of your life story, the way entropy works in uh, multiplying microstates and, and how do I use that in, in this in this process. When I think about entropy, it almost sounds like what you might be working against, like that chaos factor. If I'm, I'm trying by doing these certain things, I'm trying to counteract the entropy in my life. Does that make sense? Mm. 
Absolutely. And what I love to do is it's a very scientific term, but there are ways to watch entropy throughout your life. And I talk a lot about low versus high entropy events. Um, and the the higher the entropy, the more influence you actually have over it. So there's playing with entropy is is really more the way I feel, the way I approach it is you're playing with entropy. Yeah, you want to stave off entropy for sure. If you're building a bridge, you know, you want to stave off entropy in that way. Or if you're designing metal, because um, entropy is rust. But there's also five years from now is a more entropic event or it's there's more entropy the further away you get from a moment and that can be played with you know um it's also like if you were to you know a, an old way of divination would be reading the movement of a flock of birds and so you watch a flock of birds and there's this old way of divining where they receive information from the way the birds fly. They and mean, when you say the they diviner. Receive, ah, gotcha. Yeah, keep going. So they're kind of observing and feeling into the birds and the movement and getting an intuitive hit from that. Is that? Yeah. And and so keep going. Tell me what you would. And so like the shuffling of cards or the throwing of yarrow stocks or you know the dice roll all of that those are high entropy events there's a lot of unpredictability there and so can you predict can you help predict what the answer is going to be in that entropy or there's Five years from now, there are so many states that are possible for you or me that can then you influence yourself to move in a certain way to get to a, a result that you want. And so the unpredictability of states, multiplying micro states, can be something that's very playful. And I like to watch and predict. Um, entropy in like a soloist like when i'm playing drums and i'm playing with a soloist it's not a pre-written melodic line they are improvising and improvising is a high entropy event and so with some of the bands i play in we have these moments of like musical esp where we all bring the volume down in this really cool like roller coaster way the audience loves it we didn't talk about it we just felt that that was where it should go at the same time but it was very unpredictable you know and and that's one of the cool things about any improvisatory music is that you you're playing with entropy because it's it's not set you know if if me and a couple people are playing a Bach piece and we all practice this Bach piece at our house and we learn the music and it's this certain thing that was written by this genius and we're trying to play a version of it. We want to play it pretty, pretty close to the way we rehearsed it. That's what we 
we want out of the you know it's not improvisatory it's it's a set piece that we want to play so that would be like a low entropy so what are the specifics if you're playing with a band and you wanted to harness that kind of creative moment through this this magic what would you through your magic what would the steps be i try to visualize myself in the moment you know almost like i do this thing with certain members that i play with certain band members where i visualize like a bolt of of lightning between my brain and their brain and i try to anticipate where they're going through this imaginative connection that i've created mm. and some really amazing moments come out and it's easier with certain musicians than it is with others i have two musicians that i have in mind i play in a band called the grown-ass man band and uh they are just some phenomenal musicians. The bass player is like one of the best bass players in Colorado, if not further. And the trombone player is this really amazing guy. He went to the New England Conservatory of Jazz and just like, and playing with those two, I feel this real, this these moments of ESP where I'm totally locked into where they're going. And we haven't spoken about it. It's It's an energy that we're both writing and we're both going the same place at the same time. And there could have been like very little prediction unless you're like in the moment and you're just writing the same wave. And it's really cool. And it's really cool because then when you play with people that it doesn't happen, you almost appreciate the the times when it did that much more. Mm. There's something about um, I'm playing with these, this band I want to be in the moment for the creative improvisational space. So in order to do that, I want to feel connected to these other bandmates. So I visualize a connection mm. and that increase that setting that intention and doing that imagination increases the probability that we're going to be connected. Yeah. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And it, it's really an amazing feeling when it happens. It's like, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So while we're on this subject of music, maybe we could transition a little. You also have a thing about the musical circuits. Tell me about that. Yeah, so that was um, where I always took the eight circuit model um, because music is my obsession. I kind of put everything through a musical filter. And so when i started reading about the musical or the eight circuit model and prometheus rising is the first uh my first introduction to that model i instantly started thinking well how can i use this for music to learn music to play music and it was very analogous like the connection was almost effortless mm. and so what i did is i i started devising a curriculum for my students the other thing, um, I teach at a school, but I also have a, a large studio of students that I teach privately. And for the last 10 years, I think, I've just been using the musical circuit. So every lesson, since it's a half an hour or an hour lesson, I divide it in four. And we always do the first four circuits. 
And then depending on who I'm working with, I like to use Antero Ali's idea of the, the interval of the fifth. And so we still go through the first four circuits, but depending on where they're at, I bring in five, six, seven, and eight as that vertical connection to one, two, three, and four. Well, let's start with one through four then. Tell me how you would walk through that. What's the, what are the four steps, so to speak? So the first one is, you know, treating music and your instrument as like a surrogate mom mm. and thinking about posture and, you know, like, can I just sit with my instrument and the sound that it creates and let that sort of nourish me? And there's no right or wrong. There's no correct or incorrect. It's just a way to be with the instrument and the sound as a nourishing sort of motherly um, experience. There's like this deep, basic connection with the instrument. Like almost, uh, God, what, what was the words that came up for me? Like adoring the instrument. Mm -hmm. and uh resonating with the the sounds that come out of it and letting that as you said nourish you um right so just to me that's like developing a bond with the instrument uh or to go mm -hmm. a little further i would call it an attachment but yeah when i use that word i think it gets a little confusing with like the buddhist non-attachment thing but there's something about that bond i'll say okay so that's circuit one is that Correct. Yeah, yep, absolutely. And um, if you're a singer, and even if you're not, your voice is a great way to do that. To You can soothe yourself with your voice. And there, uh, I call it humming and drumming. And so whether it's a drummer uh, or not, I do exercises with humming and drumming. Because when you're a fetus, what you're when your hearing comes online, you're hearing your mom's heartbeat and your heartbeat in sync. So there's the drumming. And then you're hearing her voice filtered through amniotic fluid, which sounds very vowel. There's a lot of vowels and it's very soft and soothing. And so you're in, your nervous system comes online with this like soothing drum and soothing hum. And so getting back to that, you know, humming and drumming is a very soothing thing for us. And so um, I do a lot of humming and drumming while playing the instrument, whatever that may be. So that those are the main circuit one exercises. Circuit two, uh, if we think about the way a toddler starts using their muscles to overcome obstacles, to stand up, um, to start, you know, the, the power politics, to start moving around and knowing who's boss. Well, if you're going to be, if there has to be a top dog and a bottom dog, I feel like if I can, if my instrument can be bottom dog, it's not, it's not a domineering thing like it would be if it was another person. It's me owning my territory, my territory being the instrument. And so if I can have this, this confidence of muscle control while playing my instrument, then mm. I, I feel powerful, you know? And one of the ways I do that is I have them toggle between opposites. I have what's called the compass of confidence, 
where north is loud, south is quiet, east is fast, west is slow. And then we we toggle between those opposites in order to express our emotions through volume and speed. Okay. Oh, that's beautiful. I love there's something about just basic muscular control as a way to exert mastery of the instrument and using that kind of dynamic range of loud and quiet and fast and slow. Oh, that's really cool. So it's just kind of like this basic, um, very basic utilization of the instrument, but just to demonstrate, like I can, I can take this from one range to the one end of the range to the other. And here's two ranges to create this kind of dynamic spectrum. Mm-hmm. And it comes a lot from uh, Antro Ali's exercises that he goes for for circuit two, where he does the polarization rituals with emotional opposites. And you can also do that in music. You can take a, a certain combination of emotional opposites and express yourself on the instrument. And the beauty of it is mm. there's no right or wrong. There's no correct or incorrect. You, you sort of ask the inner critic to wait out in the waiting room while you do circuit one and circuit two, and then you invite them back in for circuit three. Ah, okay. Well, let's, let's pause on that for a second, but I like this. I was thinking about that Ontario's polarity ritual and the idea how you're, you're creating flexibility. So the more I move around these different ranges and, and expand and contract and, I'm creating that kind of, uh, I don't know, tonal flexibility. Maybe that's my music yeah. vocabulary is kind of off, but okay. And and then and you suspend the critic. You're just building this bond with the instrument, learning how to stretch the play of the instrument. And then, uh, and then you bring the critic in. Sounds ominous. Like, I'm, ooh. <laughs> say because more about that. That's third circuit then. Yeah, so third circuit is where most music education starts and kind of stays, although it goes into the fourth a little bit because we usually play for people and with people, but it's the learning of the exercises. So you're you're learning the scales, you're learning what what chord progressions are and how to read and or write a melody. Um you're you know, you're learning about articulation and um you know, a lot of music schools get into correct and incorrect. And I do a little bit of that because it's okay to hone your skills and to cut out the slop, you know, and to, you know, to create more clarity. Um, but I don't get into a lot of really worrying about correct and incorrect. Um, I have exercises that kind of gain clarity without too much worry. Gotcha. So, yeah, one of the things I, I think for me, it's the third circuit where things start to get really, really complex. And, and I could speak about the third circuit with a lot of different lenses. But there's something in this case that strikes me about putting a structure on it. Um, and But not judging like how closely you adhere to the structure so much as just putting that structure in place of scales and chords and melodies and and um all that and you want to learn the language of music so that you can communicate your musical ideas right with more clarity you know if you're writing music with a band you know you want to be able to express 
your ideas in a clear way so that the band can get this piece written that you want. Mm. Um, and so if they know the vernacular, the musical vocabulary that you know, it's a lot easier. If if this musician knows how to read notes on a staff, then I can write some notes on a staff, hand them the piece of paper, and they will play very similar to the way I originally wrote it because we both understand the language. Right. Now, you don't have to do it that way. I do a lot of fun things with non-traditional notation where I call it um, points and or particles and waves where you can write out a bunch of waves and a bunch of particles and then interpret that. But if I were to write that and hand it to a musician and then I would hand B musician the same thing, they would come up with something very different, which is cool. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But if I want it to be more specific, this melody I wrote, then I, if I handed that to somebody who didn't know how to read the staff, they'd be like, I don't know what you're yeah. trying to tell me, you know. Right. But that you have that common ground of basic musical literacy that allows you to mm -hmm. communicate ideas back and forth. There's something about that, too, that goes beyond just having that common language, but that structure and how, um, well, the phrase that comes to mind is structure creates freedom. And that I have uh, come from a place in my in certain parts of my career where I didn't really have any structure and I just tried to improvise the whole time. And I really struggled at first. I needed some basic structure to start with uh, as a beginner. And I'm, I'm, I'm speaking as a psychotherapist, actually, early in my career without having a basic structure uh, to follow. I was just kind of improvising by the seat of my pants, so to speak. And I really struggled. And eventually I learned how to, um, I kind of learned my own structure over time. And and that allows me to have a place of where I start from and kind of, but that structure also creates the freedom for me to improvise off of it. And mm. it works, it works much more beautifully. And I, I always wonder if I had more structure to begin with, if I would have come up the learning curve a lot quicker. I'm, I'm just kind of rambling here, but I'm wondering if that makes sense to you from a musical context. Yeah, no, it absolutely makes sense. Uh, and you are all, if I feel like, uh, when I hear you talk about that, it's like this idea where you're always sort of on the toggle between structure and improvisation. And like the way we're talking right now, we're basically improvising, but we're improvising over the English structure vernacular that we both know. But right. we haven't we haven't written out what we're saying beforehand. We're we're riffing, you know, we're we're vibing, yeah. you know. And so we are actually improvising right now this whole time. And most of the time when you talk with people, you're improvising, but you're yeah. improvising over a structure. Now, if I got really improvisatory and I started, you know, garbling and making really like um, sort of incomprehensible use of language. It may be funny, but it I would lose you. My, my yeah. message wouldn't necessarily, if there's any message there, wouldn't necessarily come across. Um, right. And that's the beauty of really good improvisers is that it's not 
complete nonsense, but it's so unpredictable that the surprise element is beautiful. Yeah. And you're op- you're open to that that surprise. Um right. and it's it's a really cool it's a really cool thing to be a part of and it's honestly it's a really cool thing to see happen. You know, when I play shows, you can see the audience loving those moments. They intuitively pick up on that's what's happening and it's so in the moment this will never happen again. I'm here witnessing this event that will never happen again. And the more in the moment that the band and the audience are together, the more beautiful the experience. Love that. Love that. So let's bring it back. So we're kind of improvising, (laughs) improvising on, uh, we're on an improvisation that started out with the third circuit. And you mentioned something that I thought was interesting where it it provides that common language where you can talk to your bandmates. And that leads me then to think about the fourth circuit, um, which is then, you know, just we're in this together. I'm in a group with a band. This is what you might call a social arrangement. It's not really a social thing, but you're four people gathered together for a common purpose. Mm Mm-hmm. Say, say more about that then as the fourth circuit of music. Yeah, I feel like it it's it is the social aspect. It's the you know, you're you're together with a band, you know, you're playing a genre. You know, there's a lot of I talk a lot about genres and style when it comes to music, which can create a moral sort of moral superiority of this music is good that music is bad. I don't like jazz. I'm a punk rock guy. You know, there, there becomes this sort of like ethical dilemma. You know, there's the, the difference between sacred and secular, you know, a lot of that, that social aspect, um, you know, people get very into this style is good. I remember having a lot of arguments with people about like, well, jazz, that's no good. And for a lot of times, you know, they thought it was the devil music and everybody was on the wacky weed. And, you know, like we listen to serious music, you know, written by serious composers. And so there's this sort of moral philosophy that comes along with, with music when you get into groups and, and can you play one of the exercises I use to flex myself is, can I play a genre with a group of people that is outside my my social comfort zone? Being that I'm not super religious, what would my personality need to go play in an evangelical church, which I've done, you know, and it's this weird social like I'm playing drums in this band and it's all praise music and it's in this like mega church evangelical like everybody's there. But I don't have those same beliefs, you know, but but can I put that away and and just play the music with this group of people who's also, you know, just in it for the music? And rather than being this moral dilemma of I'm playing music that I don't believe in, can I put that away? Can I flex my personality, you know, and, and just be there? The other fourth circuit thing I like is um, people talk about how it's kind of an amalgam of circuit one, two, and three. So I've, I use C words because I'm all about the alliteration. 
<laughs> so can I be circuit one comfortable, circuit two confident, circuit three clear in order to circuit four collaborate? Mm. And that's the musical personality is one through and one, two, three, and four all sort of working together. Tell me more about collaboration. So, you know, can my personality be be flexible enough to to collaborate with any group of people? And I've been in hundreds of bands with hundreds of people. And every time you come to it with your personality. And so when I was less flexible and I had some circuit two issues, I might be arrogant. I might come to that group and be an asshole and be like, it's my way or the highway and, and be that sort of circuit to authority in a, in a situation where it wasn't called for. And, and a lot of times if that happens, doesn't go well, bands, you know, fall apart. There's bands that you could think about in, in culture, like the Beatles, you know, if you wanted to go through, what happened to the Beatles as a group? I'm sure there was some second circuit, you know, disagreements happened there. And so the bands that I've been in that have been very successful, meaning we all get along, it's this nice kind of easy process and we have a lot of fun playing together. It's because people have a handle on their personality and they're able to put you know, their best self forward in order to, for this group mind to excel and, and get out there and really play some music for an audience. Who's another group of group of people, you know, the audience is the group as well. So band on stage audience, all in one big group, you know, collaborating together, we're feeding off them, you know, they're feeding off us and we're all having this group experience that only can come through music and and that beauty, the beauty of that experience. And when I get into the audience, before we do that, it strikes me, or I wonder about, and maybe in part by the instrument you play, and but also the personality of the person where um, each of the band members might have a different role within the musical creation and, and, and playing execution. And I, I could even see those roles evolving, changing, but like shifting. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's it's always a different, you know, a different shift. And it's always a different mixing of elements, depending on how many people are in the band. You know, if it's a trio and it's an instrumental trio who is primarily playing weddings, that's a whole different dynamic than if it's a 18 piece funk band that's trying to fill a theater, you know, yeah. and selling records and everything is a, it's a whole different experience. And so the shift happens based on, you know, where you're playing and what the audience is feeling, the way everybody is coming to that situation. I've, you know, you'll have these moments where the band is on fire and it's playing great. And then you play a week later and it's crap. <laughs> you know, why is that? Like what happened? It's the same group of people on stage, but it may be a different group of people in the audience and sort of what is shifted, you know, yeah. did, did the bass player 
is he going through a divorce, you know, and is the guitar player feeling like he's the greatest guitar player ever because some woman's looking at him, giving him eyes or, you know, like all the different things that, that can happen. Right. So I, I like, again, as we move through the circuits, there's kind of, to me, an increase in complexity and that fourth circuit, I think gets super complex but if I could boil it down into one simple phrase, it's like the your role in the village, which mm. might be in this case your role in the band, and how that. Well, I, I imagine, on one hand, you know, just you you've moved through a lot of bands, but each time you're in a band, you have to kind of find your place within the band and how you interact with the other players. But that not only that, but it sh could shift night from night, uh, location to location. Again, that's where the audience comes in. Um, and I'm, you, you just gave some examples, but I'm really curious about how the audience as a whole influences your playing. Is there some story? Yeah, there is like, you know, it would depend on like the situation because there's been bands I'm in where we fill the room you know, the people in the audience are quote unquote fans who came there, paid a ticket to see this particular band play. And we are we are kind of giving them what they paid for. And that's a different, different situation. I've also been in bands that have been hired to play at a bar that has a bunch of people. You know, the bar is full anyway, and they just hire us to entertain who's there. And half the people are having conversations and could care less. And some other people may be really gelling with it. Um, I've been in bands who've made people walk out, <laughs> you know, because they are not gelling with it. And they're like, all right, I'm going somewhere else because this is not working. And um, I was <laughs> I was in a band once. It was a, a Pink Floyd tribute band. And we were playing this bar and the bartender was like not enjoying it and came up to us at a break and basically paid us to stop yeah. he was like he was like i you know i'll give you an extra hundred dollars if you just don't go back on <laughs> and and then we're like all right like we're gonna take the hint obviously this is not working for you so okay like, like it's kind of it's a really weird awkward situation but yes all right and so then we were packing up our stuff and he puts on Britney Spears, and that was obviously what oh what he wanted. And so then a lot of people in the crowd are like, "Why y'all? Are you not going back on? Like, why are you guys packing up?" And so we're like, "Well, the <laughs> the bartender told us he didn't like it and asked us to stop playing." And so, um, <laughs> yeah. And so that you know, there's those those situations. Um, and then I was going to also say, if you think about, I'm a drummer. And the role of a drummer in a band is usually very different than the role of a singer. You know, there's a whole different personality that you come to. I'm behind a drum set. I'm usually in the back. I'm more of a supportive role. You know, I'm playing a groove so that everybody can feel comfortable. And it's not a super flashy, I rarely take solos. I'm just locking locking it down and keeping everybody in the pocket. Um, whereas a singer, their personality's out there. Depending on lyrics, they're usually telling a story. 
you know, it's a very different, different role. And your personality is going to have you show up to that role. I never wanted to be a singer. You know, I really, that's not my bag. The odd thing is now, because I'm a teacher in a school, I'm singing and playing the ukulele for a group of 30 kids every day, <laughs> all day. And so it's just like, well, I got to find some way for my personality to make, make that happen because I actually really enjoy it. Um, but it's not the same as the drummer role. You know, it's it's I'm I'm the guy they're the audience and I'm trying to make it fun for them and they're singing along and, and it's this really cool collaborative experience with a group of five and six year olds, you know? Yeah. So as a drummer in the band, do you feel like you have influence over the various musicians? I mean, you talked about that a little bit, I think, but just like, how would you say you shape the music in relation to the other players in the moment? Well, I, I agree with this. There's this sort of parlance of the drummer being the bus driver. You hear that a lot. It's like a cliche that you hear a lot in, in music. And I agree with that. I feel it. Um, I've heard a lot of people tell me that the drummer is the most important part of the band, that if the drums are off, it's, it's pretty off-putting to the to the audience because there's this there's this wobbly sense of rhythm that the audience really doesn't like. Somebody, a mm. teacher of mine, told me once he was like, an audience will put up with quite a few bad notes, but they will rarely put up with um, sloppy rhythm. That's <laughs> you know to the point where drum machines were created because of that. You know, and 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 the way you hear produced music, it's almost always rhythmically steady and tight. But, you know, a band like Nirvana, who I love, they there were a lot of bad notes. There was a lot of out of key um, and even some sloppy singing. But David Grohl was tight as a nut. I mean, he was like steady super tight and the idea is if he wasn't then the bad notes and everything would have been that much worse and that nirvana would not have been what nirvana was a lot of people credit dave grohl with the success though kurt cobain was the personality in front the david grohl's amazing ability to keep it tight and to play things that are both creative but also very simple is really one of the major reasons for the success of of that band wow love that so let's see here i want to just go back to the beginning where uh you start out with a like a first circuit musical approach and you develop this relationship this bond with your instrument and from there, you can move into this kind of second circuit place where you sort of expand the range, so to speak. I love this idea of like this uh, grid or not a grid, but a two dimensional uh, loud, soft, fast, slow. The compass uh, of confidence. Yeah. Ooh, compass of confidence. Mm. And I guess part of me, let's see. So, yeah, so I want to, I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking about how to relate this to life. 
So the so you you you're developing a relationship with the instrument, and then I would almost wonder about like just developing a relationship with my physical body if I'm just mm-hmm. relating this to life, and and soothing my body and being soothed by my body, and mm-hmm. then expanding my range of uh, who I am as a person, maybe emotionally, if I'm talking about a person, in different um, polarities. And then putting some structure and language, like a common language on it, um, so that I can begin to work with it in something that's coherent. Um, I feel like I'm working too hard to relate this to regular life, but uh, at the same time, I'm enjoying this. Um, And then, and then, you know, if I begin to collaborate with other people, my bandmates, my audience, um, as part of a creation. Uh, I'm going to leave it at that. I feel like I'm, I'm breaking my brain here. I, I really like that. Um, and like one of the, one of the things that I, that I got when you were saying that was the way I, I interact with like coworkers at work. If I can come to the situation, having myself, you know, I've got proper sleep. I've, I've got a good diet. I feel comfortable in my own skin and my own body, then I can come to that situation from that place of comfort. If I can flex my emotions and I can toggle, um, then I come to that, that situation with more inner confidence without having to be boastful. I just feel like I have this compass of confidence so that when when I'm feeling sad and I need to go happy, well, I have this memory of being able to toggle on my instrument. I can take that into life and then I can be able to toggle as well. And so it's this emotional flexibility. There's this woman, I don't know if you know her name is uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett. And she talks a lot about emotional granularity and that anger one is not anger two is not anger three. And the more, the more emotional granularity you have, the more flexible you can be. And so you can come to situations in, in, in a flexible, like emotionally intelligent personality so that when it's needed, I can be what's needed, you know, and I'm not stuck in an emotional rut. Um, which causes a whole lot of problems. If I'm feeling pissed off, but I'm supposed to go into a meeting with three other teachers, I have to put that away. And and what I found in my own life is my ability to toggle on my instrument reaches mm-hmm. out to my ability to toggle in in non musical situations. Say that last part about toggling. Can you say just a little more about that? Yeah. So it's like if I'm feeling pissed and I have to go into this situation where pissed is not going to help. I have this this memory of being able to toggle loud, quiet, fast, slow, happy, sad, excited, calm. So before I go into the situation, can I breathe a little bit? Can I get my emotions in check through some through some breathing exercises and toggle between pissed and then non-pissed or my, what might be calm or what might even be happy? Because that's what that situation is going to need. 
for both uh, the benefit or me and other, but it's the toggling that I did on my instrument that gave me that agency, that gave me the memory that toggling is possible. Because before I got into that, you know, I would feel victim of my emotions and I'd be like, I really should not be going into this, this event pissed, but I can't get out of it. Like I'm just pissed. And so there is something to be said for expressing that and letting those, you know, emotions need to be expressed, but can I express that in a, in a way that it doesn't hurt anybody and then toggle and put myself in a position where I'm more beneficial for the situation emotionally. I, the phrase that comes up for me, and I don't know that I have the bandwidth right now to, to get too far into it, but just the idea of emotional regulation. Mm. Can I allow for these emotions, allow myself to feel them? And that's part of, I think, the regulation process and then bringing myself sort of back to a baseline so that I can function and engage with other people. Mm-hmm. So uh, what I would love to go into next, um, very exciting for me, I think, is just getting beat different people's takes on the upper and lower circuits and the relationships. So maybe you can talk a little about the upper circuits and how that all fits into this. Yeah, so circuit five, I love Antro Ali's, uh, he brings in the term charisma. Mm. And, and there's this like, this magnetic aspect to music and seeing a charisma, a charismatic performer is magnetic. And it's, it's a, it's like a joy to see. And, um, I have, these exercises I do where um, I have students watch video of certain musicians, but I turn the sound off and they're watching fully for this person's like, like charismatic movements and this sort of like, it's almost an infectious, you know, where you're, you're really gelling with their movement on the instrument and, just seeing the bliss that can come out of music, you know, um, and then you can turn the sound on and then you can hear that bliss come out of their, mm. of their instrument as well. I also think this is where a lot of like the, the wellness aspect of music can come in and how music, you know, can, it can be a source of, of wellness. There, there's a ton of science on the, the, health benefits to drumming and it's good for you know it boosts the immune system and uh it, it down regulates anxiety and you feel more sort of more blissful in in this sort of hedonic so somatic um centering in music you know and and there's this cool thing i don't know if you know about vibroacoustic therapy can't say I've heard about that specifically, but it makes sense. And it's less music and more like sound, like what certain hurts do resonance, you know, how certain hurts resonate with the body. Um, and so there are these like beds that people lay on and there are certain hurts that are good for headaches and other hurts that are good for, you know, um, diet and and things like that. And one of the cool things uh, that I love to love to talk about is the way that a cat purrs 
the cat purrs at a certain hertz that is beneficial, like it re- regenerates bones. Um, the Russian hockey team, uh, I guess I've heard this as a story. They have these these like sound uh, boxes that they get in that play a recorded cat purr. And yeah. and and the science is like on it. Like you can oh, anybody yeah. can Google this, like that it's it's super good for you. And you then you think about these old, like 80-year-old cat ladies who are just being healed by all the cats <laughs> purring on them and and you know, like that's the idea of, of I could I could music. Yeah. I'd love to like uh next time I try and take a nap, find some cat purring music that I could listen to. That sounds lovely. Yeah. Tell me, okay, so you talk about the fifth circuit and this charisma, magnetism, and joy. And uh, I'm wondering how you see that. And I'm just curious how you see that related to the first. The more comfortable I am, the more I can be charismatic, the more settled I feel with my instrument. And the longer that I can play, without discomfort, the more blissful I feel. And so anytime I play for a long time and if discomfort comes in, I'm thinking like, you know, and drummers a lot of times have lower back pain or, you know, a lot of bass players get shoulder issues because the bass is heavy and it's always on one shoulder. And so if they can figure out ways to stave off any kind of discomfort or pain, then that physical comfort allows for more charisma to shine and it allows for more bliss and joy and trance to come out because you're not sort of hampered by a physical discomfort. It's also like if anybody who's ever played while they were sick, I remember I did a gig once and I had pneumonia. I didn't even know I had pneumonia. I figured it out the next morning, but I was like blisters and, you know, pneumonia is like fatigued and, you know, there's liquid in your lungs and you can barely breathe. And I'm having to play like a gig, you know, like a four hour gig. And I'm like, holy, this sucks. Um, And so not only did I use a little probability engineering to get through that gig, but I tried to light myself up. You know, I used some of the, like, um, huge fan of Israel Regardi, and he has this thing called the middle pillar exercise. During that gig, I was heavily relying on the middle pillar exercise, almost as a fifth circuit exercise, to to sort of help my my first circuit, holy shit, I've got pneumonia, or I feel like I'm dying, you know? And so the, the middle pillar exercise, I feel helped me get to the end of that gig. And, and, you know, like I even heard some of my musician friends, they're like the next day I went to the doctor and they're like, dude, you got pneumonia. Here's a oxygen, (laughs) here's an oxygen tank and some steroids. You need to chill, you know? And, and so I told my friends and they're like, what? Like, like you were playing really well on the drums and you had pneumonia. Like, what are you talking about? And I was like, yeah, man. Like, and I feel very confident to say that that middle pillar exercise that I was literally doing while I'm playing, like I'm on the bandstand and I'm spheres of light, like doing whatever I can do 
to to get that fifth circuit up because there was so much first circuit yeah. uh, discomfort. I like so you're tying that in to me in my mind with the sort of the physical body and how to kind of overcome that that physical limitation in order to still be that bring that charismatic magnetic energy. I also imagine just to kind of go back to your original premise that that the more you have this kind of bond and relationship with your instrument, the more you'll you can allow the that charismatic magnetic energy to flow through you and the instrument and the playing and and reach that kind of blissful place. Um, That's a great way to put it. I've never I've never put it at like that. That's awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, that's I, again. I get really interested. Prior to Ontario, I want to say our, our folks that don't get into Ontario seem to view the circuits as a a progression from one to eight, and and you know Leary and and Wilson had this kind of like uh, going off into space and going into higher states of consciousness trajectory, or at least that's my interpretation of them. And then Ontario brought into this kind of lower upper relationship. And I, more often than not, don't see uh, the upper and lower as separate so much as like the upper as an extension of the lower, like a higher spiritual state of a lower, more soulful, or a higher, more, let me say that again, a higher, more spiritual expression or uh experience uh that comes from that lower more soulful place something like that yeah i'm rambling i feel like first for the first four circuits are getting my musical personality if it's the musical circuits together so that i can be creative and imaginative which is uh, to me the top the top four so like circuit six is where I I put improvisation, but it's also where I put probability engineering. Okay. And the more confident, the more flexible I can be in circuit two, the more I've worked my opposites and my ability to toggle, the more in the moment I can be when a unpredictable, uncertain improvisation is happening. Like if I if I'm sort of secure in my circuit two confidence, then I'm a better uh, accompanist accompanist for a soloist, or I'm better at improvising myself because I can drop the volume down like that, or I could bring it up, and I'm predicting and riding the wave of the soloist, which is very mm. uncertain, very like it's a very spectrum um uncertainty but i'm better at doing that if my second circuit is is together you know if yes. i spend what comes up for me is um boy a few things but to the extent that i um am connected to my instrument and feel flexible in and how I work with it. And that's kind of defining my space, so to speak. Um, and then I can attune. There's something about the sixth circuit that allows me to attune to the other players and the vibe of the room and uh, allow myself to be influenced by that. 
Yeah. There's like a, a, what came up to me when you were talking about that is almost like a clear audience, you know, and, and you have this, like this, you're able to see the music, you know, in a clear audience way, uh, which makes you a better improviser and makes you more in the moment. And you have fun with the uncertainty, you know, and, and I have uh, what's called synesthesia when it comes to music, yeah. where I see music as colors. And that's a beautiful, fun thing to do, because while I'm improvising with another musician, I'm also sort of painting in a way like like I'm I'm adding a color spectrum to their color spectrum that is is comparable, you know, and complementary. I'm complementing it, you know, and and I'm seeing their solo as a dance of colors and I'm adding my color to that in this really right. cool art art form um it's all i mean it's amazing it's super fun <laughs> yeah the, yeah i have more of a intuitive felt sense thing going on for me i don't necessarily relate to clear audience or synesthesia but i get that kind of again getting your second circuit act together so that you can attune to what that felt sense experience is and and roll with it yeah um, absolutely so while we're at it, then let's let, let's cover uh, seven. What would that be? So it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier. Um, you you develop a vocabulary so that you can put your vocabulary away and tell a story. Ah, uh, and you know the idea that you know music is like you know it's it's telling the the planetary story and it's beyond your local vernacular seventh circuit would be more of an archetypal, you know, can I use my instrument to tell a story to someone in China who doesn't speak language may not even read the same kind of like um, tonality that I do, but can I, through my instrument, tell them a story that they resonate with? Um, and so like, Another thing would be, can I, can I use my, my music to broaden my own life story? You know, uh, you have, you have composers that are very seventh circuit, like Beethoven, like Bach, you know, who, who resonate with more than just the European ear. And then you have a lot of bands who who are like cross genre, where they're um, taking musics from different cultures to tell a larger story. I feel like Seventh Circuit is this archetypal story that benefits from you having clarity in your own vocate your own vocabulary, so that you can then broaden and and expand out. Okay, that's making sense to me. I'm going to see if I can explain what I'm thinking here. But to the extent that I, I get my second circuit uh, act together, I'll say, that allows me to attune to the members of the band and how I play in relation to them. And the seventh circuit is almost... What comes up for me, if I can explain this, is like a greater attunement of the band to the environment and the global 
thing and and you know broadening beyond the band broad beyond broadening beyond my story and beyond broadening beyond the story of the band in a way i don't i'm struggling yeah. I think, to explain this the way i want to but i'm curious what you've got to say there well i think what came to me when you were saying that is like is that's why they you hear this this other cliche that music is a universal language I don't know uh, if I would go if I would go universal, but I definitely think music is the planetary language that almost every culture on the planet has has had some sort of music and that the sound, the organization of sound into music is beyond all languages like right. people in China use organization of sound and the people in Brazil use organization of sound. But they over there speak Chinese and they over there speak Portuguese and you couldn't put the two of them in the room and have them have a conversation unless they knew their languages. But you could put the two of them in a room with instruments if they knew how to play their instruments and they could still get together and play some music. Yeah, right, right. So there's beyond like the lyrics and the words and the interpretation of, of, of lyrics, which is going to be language specific, there's a certain feeling and an emotionality you might say a first circuit sense of safety or fear and a second circuit sense of emotional content. Um, and even a third circuit sense of structure uh, beyond, again, the lyrics that uh, it is universal among, I, I think what you're saying is universal uh, as far as at least our planet goes. Mm -hmm. And there's <laughs> musical synchronicity involved as well, where like, um, different cultures will come up with different or will come up with almost the same thing, but they couldn't have talked about it together. Yeah. You know, there, there's African rhythms that you, you hear in like Northern European music and they weren't in discussion. There was something they, it was almost like they downloaded something from DNA or mm. or or from the planet where they both came up with a very similar pattern you know though they weren't discussing it and so there's something synchronistic about that you know there is this um there's this really cool like pattern that uh is very west african but then you also hear it in northern european like um almost like the scottish pipe bands and it's mm. this really cool thing, and I and I love it, and I play it a lot. And it's like those two cultures weren't talking; they didn't give it to each other. They just both came up with it, you know. Right. And so that's one of the cool things about the planetary music is that, you know, there's there's only so many things to choose from, too. Like that's the other that's the other part is that you know, like if you're working in rhythm. There's there's rhythms that gel and then there's rhythms that don't necessarily gel. And I think different cultures come up with similar ones. Um, and, and it's yeah. like, the, yeah, it's this cross-cultural coincidence kind of thing happening. Yeah, it was like time for that rhythm or pattern to emerge and it just sprouted up in a bunch of different places. I love mm. that. Yeah. Okay, uh, last one then, Eighth Circuit. What do we do with that? What's that about? Well, and so, yeah, that's the that's the one that's hardest to talk about. Right. Um, yeah. But one of the things that I love about it is that um, the musical 
circuit brings in the idea that eight and one have a relationship. That if you think about a scale, uh, eight and one are where it comes back around. Right. And so I think I call it like you, you have the physical body and you have the dream vessel. And so um, you can download dream music and and your body goes or your part of you goes into the eighth circuit during dream time, during out of body experiences. And so uh, there are sounds and and certain things that come come alive in an out of body experience. And so that's part of where I go seven eight, with eight circuit. The other kind of cool thing is that neuroscience has realized that we put together physical motor skills while we dream. There's this piano player who who stumbled upon this because he would practice right before he went to sleep, would not be able to execute what he was trying to play would sleep on it you know there's that that cliche of sleeping on it and in the morning he would be able to play it and so that baffled him he's like oh i don't understand i i could not play it i went to sleep in the morning i woke up and i it was there for me and so a neuroscientist friend of his was like well the reason that is is that we actually we dream about those movements and we practice those movements in dream time and then you actually get better at it. And the theory also goes is that this is one of the ways children's learn to walk and talk is that they they see, they mimic, they see people doing it throughout the day and then they dream about it. And they're usually better in their dreams. And therefore, when they wake up, their body has a has a, almost has a memory of doing it, even though they only did it out of body in their dreams fascinating i love how you're connecting eight to one the dream non-local to the not the, like the non-local body the dream body to the physical body and and um part of that is because i see you know from time to time somebody's like searching for what's the ninth circuit what's next the higher state of evolution and i I have trouble with that because I don't see the model that way. I see the model is very complete the way it's designed. And and when you start circling from eight back to one, it really shows that uh, completeness. At least for mm. me, I like that. Um, and there's also, I want to think about this for a second, because it's when you go from three to four, you're kind of going from the individual to me to the band. And then um, I don't know if this makes sense or not, because so let's say you've got the band, the social collective, and everybody's got their role and they're all gelling together as one. That's four on fire or or clicking on all cylinders. What would eight be? The non-local community, like um, there's the idea of some people have um gotten musics from like dmt entities mm. um there's another i'm trying experiments with some of my musician friends who don't live in colorado where we we're attempting a lucid dreaming experiment with what i call the organic zoom so it's almost <laughs> it's almost like you and i 
rather than on a computer Zoom, we both learn how to lucid dream. Then if we get good at that, can we jam in dream time? And if we can do that and bring back a similar musical experience, first of all, what does that say about consciousness? And and second of all, that's the sort of out of body community that you're that you're communing with as a, a, a as an extension of circuit four. Mm, nice. And that's that's the next frontier, you know, like right? that's yeah, that's some that's some out there shit. <laughs> yeah, agreed. Well, on that note, so uh, we've gone for an hour and a half here. What uh, is there anything else you'd like to to talk about before we wrap this up? What haven't I asked you that you'd like to speak on? Um, I would mainly just like one thing that I that I, the probability engineering is is part of the eighth circuit. And so, like I mentioned that um, probability engineering itself was like my sixth circuit thing. And yeah. so it's another way of using music as like magic spells. Um, and then I have like a, a vocal centering technique. That's my fifth circuit thing where you, you, it's sort of middle pillar ish and you use vowels so um, it's like you use vowels and spheres and spools to to the centering ritual that mm. that helps, you know, and then uh, the seventh circuit is more of like the pataphysical narrative that, uh, that yeah, yeah, yeah. almost that hero's journey life story thing. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's another way like. That the musical circuits and probability engineering all are pretty close together. You know, there it's like kind of one system. And I I do a lot of teaching this stuff. I have a, a website, zachwestit2c2.com. Is that and all one he, word? Zach West I2C2.com? Yeah. Yeah. Zach is Z-A-C-H. Yeah. Perfect. Yep. Okay. And you can sign up for uh, sessions on there. You can sign up for both musical circuit and probability en engineering sessions on there. Um, I also sell art out of there, which is this really kind of weird uh, acrylic art that I do, mostly like animals. And uh, and so it's like that is is really one of my favorite things to do is to is to teach to teach this stuff um, and. And I'm writing books. There's going to be a couple books that are also going to be available through my website on probability engineering and the musical circuits. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's super, super fun. And I just like love to talk about it with as many people as possible, mainly to get questions that helps me like, yeah, what this, this doesn't make sense or that makes sense. And, oh, I kind of like this. How would I use that? Um, nice. Yeah. Super fun. Okay. And we'll the, get that. The I2C2 thing comes straight from Leary. Uh, so the I2 is, it's and written as squared. I and a two, but it's, yes, I squared, C squared. So I is intelligence, much like Leary's smile, the I in the middle of smile. And then C just stands for creativity. Mm. Cultivating. Cultivating creativity. Is that the C yeah. squared? So, like yeah. That. Increasing intelligence and cultivating creativity. Nice. I like that a lot. So we'll get that in the show notes. And uh, just uh, one last note that probability engineering, I would say, is this is a word that's come up for me lately. It's is your uh, style of metaprogramming, you might say. 
Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right, Zach. Well, it was uh, it was a blast talking with you. Um, yeah, thanks. you as well. You. I I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, big fan of the podcast. Big fan of Hilaritas Press. Everybody, go out and buy all the all the books. They're amazing. Got a bunch of new ones coming out here, yeah. so uh, we'll have some special episodes that may have already come out by the time this releases, but there'll be more. Looking All forward right. to it. Thank you. That concludes the episode. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. A big thank you to Zach West for taking the time to chat. And thank you to Christina Pearson of the Robert Anton Wilson Trust and Richard Rossa of Laritas Press. Thank you to Ryan Reeves for putting it all together. Our next regular episode, releasing on the 23rd of May, will hopefully feature the mysterious and elusive Nick Tharcher of Original Falcon Books. Until then, I am your host, Mike Gathers, signing off with love and cheerfulness. Amor and hilaritas. Bye.